0: 11 and if you're using one of the pew bibles I uh, and I would commend you to to those pew bibles if you, if you have forgotten your copy of God's word today or or don't have one please please turn with us there so that you have God's word in front of you I'm going to start reading in verse 55 Hear the word of the Lord Now the passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let me pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would cause Jesus to shine this morning in the hearts of all of your people, and for those who are not your people, I pray that you would Make them Your people. I pray that You would bring about the salvation of many and keep the many You've already saved through these words. Make Jesus to look precious to us. Uh, Send Your Holy Spirit to shine the spotlight on Him this morning for us from this text here. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in a few minutes, uh, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. As a church, it's, it's not our own supper. It is the Lord's Supper. The meal belongs to Him. And He has spread a feast for His people who love Him. And I'm hoping that this message might might serve to prepare our hearts to take the supper together in a manner that is worthy of Christ. In a manner that considers His worth and His greatness and the treasure that He truly is. So to that end, I just have three things that I want us to treasure about Jesus from this passage before we go to the supper together. The first is this, I want us to learn to treasure that Jesus was resolved to love us even unto death. Jesus was resolved to love us, wicked as we are, even unto death. We see this unfold in the transition from chapter 11 into chapter 12. Notice several things with me. John tells us it's the Passover again. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, he says in verse 55. And this is the third and the last Passover that John mentions in his gospel. The third and the last of the Passovers belonging to Jesus' earthly ministry. The first one was in chapter 2, the second one was mentioned in chapter 6, this is the third. And while these Passovers certainly give us some some signposts, some markers, in the chronology of Jesus' two-and-a-half-year ministry, John has more in mind. If you recall, in chapter 1, how did he begin Jesus' earthly ministry? He began Jesus' earthly ministry with John the Baptist identifying Jesus as the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. Remember, John the Baptist tells some of the disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as Jesus is coming to him. And when Jesus dies on the cross at the end of his earthly ministry... John will tell us that the soldiers do not break Jesus' bones in order to fulfill the scriptures that were spoken about the Passover lamb. Not one of his bones will be broken, he quotes in John 19.36, which is a reference back to Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. John has more in mind than just chronology, By mentioning the Passover, he wants us to remember Jesus as the Passover lamb when we come to this last Passover feast. And more than that, notice that many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. But Jesus isn't found among them. No, the text says they were looking for Jesus saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? He's not with them who are purifying themselves. If we're familiar with our Old Testament, God required an unblemished lamb for the Passover meal. If you were to escape slavery in Egypt and God's judgment of death, you had to stand under the blood of the unblemished Passover lamb. Otherwise, you would die. And as the Passover was practiced in Israel, that unblemished lamb was to stand every year as a picture of a superior lamb God would provide in the future to deliver us from His ultimate judgment of death, namely death under His wrath. John is setting us up here. The superior, unblemished lamb, who was not only human like us, but also without sin and in no need of purification, that lamb is seen in the person of Jesus. Jesus doesn't involve himself in the purification rituals because Jesus doesn't need ceremonial purification. He is clean already. Within and without, he is pure. He always does what pleases His Heavenly Father and no one can charge Him with any sin or wrongdoing. And here's where we encounter Jesus' resolve to die for us as that Passover lamb. Take note of the next couple of verses together. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know... So that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, underline that and draw a line back to verse 57. Section break throws you off a little bit. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Here's the connection John is making. Jesus knows His last Passover is near. He knows that He's the Lamb of God sent to rescue the world from death. He knows that the chief priests and Pharisees want Him arrested. Therefore, He comes to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, where everybody's teaming up to arrest Jesus. Matthew is even more explicit than John is. He records Jesus actually saying before he goes up to the Passover, before the Passover comes, he says the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the point is, and I'm still going. I'm still going to Jerusalem. Jesus willingly drew near to the hostility To deliver us from death. To deliver us from the death that we deserve because of our sin. In order to rescue us from death, he planned to enter death on our behalf as God's Passover lamb. This is God's Passover lamb. He's the one making the provision of Jesus to deliver us from death. And Jesus resolved to love us, even when it meant He would be slaughtered for us. John puts it this way in one of his letters. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You want to know the love of God? Here it is. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Meaning, that we might live through His death. And this death is no mere physical death. It's a death under the full weight of the fury of God's wrath against our sin. When you eat of this supper this morning, meditate on Jesus' love for you. When you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, taste how passionate He is to save you. I know there's not much to taste in the stale chiclets. But, that's not what the Supper's about. The Supper is meant to remind us of spiritual things. Spiritually speaking, taste how passionate Jesus is to save you. That even in the face of death, beneath God's wrath, that even with His slaughter on the horizon, He draws near with resolve to honor His Father and deliver His friends. Folks, this love is seen, God's love is seen in that Jesus chose this path for our eternal good. God's love is not a love that merely just kind of puts up with us. When we look at God's love in Christ, it's a love that suffers to have you live with Him. It was for the joy set before Him He endured the cross. The joy of winning all of God's children and glorifying His Father that He endured the cross. And it's not merely that Jesus was resolved to love us when He went to the cross, but also that this past love of Jesus is the way God still shows His love for us today. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love for us. Now, in the present, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Died in the past. In other words, if Jesus is resolved to love you in the face of death under God's wrath, then how much is God's love still for you since He defeated sin and death once and for all? Make this meditation yours as you eat and drink. And also make it your prayer that more of His love might be in all of us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Confess to God where your love hasn't reflected the same self-sacrificing love of Jesus, who was willing to bear our burdens even unto death. Confess to God where you have decided not to love others because to love them would have inconvenienced you. Confess to God how your love may just put up with people. Instead of pursuing people for their eternal well-being at all costs to you and to your schedule and to your money and to your Friday night agendas and to your personal preferences. How prone we are simply to put up with one another instead of giving ourselves for each other as Christ gave himself for us. So fix your eyes again on Jesus as you eat and drink. We learn love from how God has acted in Christ. And the more of Him we put on, the more of Him will become evident in our desires and our actions. Loving us wasn't convenient for Jesus. But He chose the inconvenience of suffering and death for your everlasting joy. I remember a few years ago, I think Luke was about two years old. And I'm I'm sitting in the living room in the morning reading Philippians 2. You know Philippians 2, right? Consider the interests of others as better than your own. Right? Have this mind in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. And, and Luke needed a whole lot more attention that morning than, than normal. And I found myself just getting frustrated at, at all the attention He's needing. I'm I'm trying to have my quiet time, right? Are you you really going to make me apply this text now? (laughs) Considering your interest is better than my own? Loving us wasn't convenient for Jesus. But He chose the inconvenience of suffering and death for your eternal blessing and joy. How much more ought we to be willing at, the mom- at those moments, to set this aside, not altogether, but set the Bible down to tend to the needs of my children, actually live what I was reading. The same goes in our relationships with each other and with the lost around us. Loving each other is not always convenient. But we must look to Christ. Look to Him today as we take of the supper again. Number two, I want us to learn to treasure that Jesus is worthy of our devotion even at great cost to ourselves. Jesus is worthy of our devotion even at great cost to ourselves. We see this through Mary's response to Jesus. Jesus. Now, a few days ago, a few weeks ago, I'm sorry, Dan preached from Luke 7 where we also see a woman anointing Jesus' ministry with a diff, uh, and wiping his, his uh, feet with her hair. I think that's a different occasion earlier in Jesus' ministry with a different woman than the one that's mentioned here in John. John's account of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus lines up with the accounts we find in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. So that's just a helpful apologetic note if anybody ever objected that John or any of the other gospel writers are contradicting what Luke says. They're two separate events. Now verse 2. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary gets something about Jesus, doesn't she? We, we see her at Jesus' feet quite a bit. In Luke's gospel, it's Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to him teaching while Martha is distracted with much serving. When Jesus draws near to the tomb of Lazarus, it's, it's Mary who falls at Jesus' feet with great lament. And now here she's at Jesus' feet anointing them with special oil. She gets something about Jesus. She doesn't understand everything about Jesus at this point, but but what she does know about Jesus causes her to express a profound sense of devotion to Him. She's heard Him teach. She's witnessed His works. And just a few days earlier, uh, she watched Jesus call her dead brother out of the tomb. She is one who has not just looked at Jesus' miracles... But she's looked through Jesus' miracles to see His glory. And now her devotion to Jesus, in light of what she's seen about Him, expresses itself by anointing Jesus' feet with an expensive ointment and wiping them with her hair. She expresses this devotion even at great cost to herself. It's a great cost because this is not just a bottle of Clinique she pulled from her medicine cabinet. All right? This is, this is a flask about the size of a 12-ounce Coke can that contained ointment made from pure nard. Nard would be extracted from a plant grown in India and then sold at an outrageous price. John says here in verse 3, it was an expensive ointment. Mark says it was very costly. And if what Judas says about it in verse 5 is accurate, then we're looking at a flask of oil that costs around 300 denarii. People usually got one denarius for a full day's worth of work. So we're talking about a jar of ointment worth about a year's worth of wages. And she empties it on Jesus' feet. Jesus' dirty feet are infinitely more valuable than the most precious treasures of this world. Wasn't it John the Baptist who said, who am I to even untie a strap of his sandal. And if that wasn't enough, she risks her own reputation by wiping his feet with her hair. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:15 that a woman's long hair is her glory. But Mary doesn't mind using her hair, her glory, as a towel to wipe the feet of the creator who gave her that hair to begin with. In chapter 13, Jesus will go on to wash His own disciples' feet and and the point there is to display His unspeakable humility in taking the form of a slave. Slaves washed people's feet, not people who have enough money to own an expensive jar of ointment. And yet Mary stoops to that place to show Jesus how much He is worth to her. So whether it costs her the valuable ointment she owned or her reputation before others, Mary's devotion belongs to Jesus. The scene reveals that Jesus is truly worthy of all our devotion. Mary's devotion to Jesus shines brightly, but only because her devotion lifts up the worth of Christ. At all costs to herself, and regardless of what others might think of her. The point is that Jesus is so valuable, we should be thrilled to give Him even our most precious possessions, to serve Him in even the lowliest positions in His kingdom, that of a slave, and to sacrifice our inner pride so that so often smothers devotion because it's too caught up with what other people think of us. Jesus is worth so much that our devotion to Him is comprehensively costly. We don't moderate our devotion to Jesus based on what we might lose in this life. It's easy to do in this world because we're constantly bombarded with lie after lie after lie that says what we gain in this world is better than Christ. Whether it be how we cherish our prized possessions Or how we elevate the opinions of others about us. Or how we fear the consequences of this kind of service. Or how we keep our guard up and don't serve or invest in anybody else to keep from being hurt again. Or whether we raise or don't raise our hands or clap in worship services because of what others might think of us. And all the while we're smothering devotion to Jesus. We shouldn't smother our devotion to Jesus based on what we might lose in this life. Rather, we should unleash our devotion to Jesus based on everything that we gain in Him and in His preciousness. It's this sort of devotion that Jesus said would be remembered wherever this gospel would be preached. In Matthew 26, 13 and Mark 14, 9, this is why the woman's going to be remembered. As long as the gospel goes forth, it's even hard for John himself to forget the whole thing as well. He remembers the fragrance of her devotion, literally filling the entire house, bearing witness to Jesus's worth. When you're eating at Jesus's supper this morning, consider again the worth of Jesus and how your own devotion displays the truth about his worth before others. Is it instead the case that nobody would know of your devotion to Jesus? Because you haven't laid down all that much. Or because you're afraid of what others might think of you when you do lay it all down. You've, you've seen that the sacrifices of following Jesus are great, but you're not willing to give him everything that he's asked of you. You know how much you know how your devotion to him will will cost you at work. You know how much it will cost you at work. Or how much it will cost you with this or that friendship, or even with this or these are these family members. But you haven't been willing to give it up. You see how much money it might take to help these individuals who are in need. But you can't seem to loosen your grip on the bank account or those plans that you have for the backyard. Or that vacation you wanted to take again. You see how foolish you might sound to bring Jesus up in this conversation. Right? We've been talking quite a bit about evangelism. How foolish it seems to bring Jesus up in this conversation, but you can't seem to speak out of fear of what others might say or do to you. You see the friendships and the reputation that following Jesus will cost you, but you're struggling to lay them at His feet to show Him off as the glorious one. Could it be that God has brought you here this morning to release you from all that slavery by giving you a fresh look at the worth of Christ? When you come to this supper, consider the worth of Jesus. Consider also that Mary hadn't put together all the pieces about Jesus herself, but what she did know about Him, she treasured. And then consider that you know more about Jesus than Mary ever knew, even though she saw Him on earth. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit to teach us all things about Himself. It was better, He said, for Him to go away, that, he, that we might benefit from a far better ministry under a new covenant in the Spirit. And he inspired the apostles to write gospels and letters and the final revelation, writers who form link after link after link, with the Old Testament leaving us with 66 books of clear testimony to Jesus' worth and value that Mary never had opportunity to read in full like we get to read in full. So when you eat and drink this morning, consider what God has revealed about the worth of Jesus in all of Scripture to you. Consider that He is the eternal Word who became flesh. Consider that He is the creator of the universe. That He is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That He is the all-satisfying bread that comes down from heaven. That He is the living water your thirsty soul needs every day. That He is the eternal life itself that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the heir of all things, that he is the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the one upholding the universe by the word of his power, who made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one before whom all heaven cries, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Worthy are you to take the scroll, the history of the universe, and break its seals and open it. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might belong to you, Jesus, forever and ever. When we see Jesus rightly, as Mary saw Jesus, namely worthy of all our devotion, there's nothing in our lives that can compete with his worth. Nothing. We will be willing to give it all up to see Him honored or lay it all down to see Him praised. But let us not do this. Let us not miss Jesus' infinite worth in exchange for the fleeting materialism of this life. That's the error that Judas makes, which leads us to our final point. Number three, I want us to learn to treasure that Jesus is is an infinitely better master than money. Jesus is an infinitely better master than money. Look at Judas's response to Mary, and then Jesus' response to Judas, verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor?" He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. The difference between Mary's response to Jesus and Judas's response to Jesus is a matter of what they value most. It's a matter of what they value most from within. Mary values Jesus at all costs to herself. Judas values money at all costs to Jesus. Sure, his pragmatic suggestion sounds rather noble at first. We could have gotten 300 denarii off this nard and given the money to the poor. But God tells us the motives driving Judas's suggestion. He wasn't concerned about the poor at all. He was concerned about himself. He used to help himself to what was in the money bag. As a side note, this should be a lesson for us. Just because somebody or an organization does noble things to serve others doesn't mean they're devoted to Jesus. It also means that when we serve the public... Our service must flow from a heart that is devoted to Jesus. From a heart that is, is from the overflow of a heart that adores who he is. Judas is using his so-called service of the poor to cover up his covetous heart. Judas loves money more than he loves Jesus. In fact, that becomes all the more clear in that not too many days from this point, Judas will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Money is Judas's master. Judas follows money, not Jesus. Money determines what he says with his mouth. I, I was teaching a in a senior adult Sunday school class one time at another church in this city. There was an 85-year-old man in there, and, and he, he said, Oh, yeah, we have an expression for that back, at, back home. Whatever's down in the well comes up in the bucket. Meaning, if what's down in the well is a heart that treasures and values money over Jesus, your actions and your words We'll evidence it. Money determines what what, what Judas says with his mouth. His love for money even causes him to conceal his evil deeds by voicing good ones so that everybody else thinks that he cares for the poor. As another side note, I think it's... Worth noting that God knows the intentions of our hearts. Even when we don't know the intentions of others' hearts. God does. He sees us. He knows us for who we are. Have you ever been tempted like that? Right? Like this here. You give people a better impression about your heart than what's truly inside. You distract people with your knowledge of what's good. Rather than transparently sharing what's beneath the surface. God knows us. There's no reason to hide. This temptation that we see and this sin that's in Judas is one that is calling into question the value of Jesus. The temptation is one that speaks lies about Jesus' worth. In this case, Judas believes the lie that money is more valuable than Jesus. That materialism is better than Jesus' mission. And here's what's worse. He saw Jesus do the same things that Mary saw Jesus do. And being part of Jesus' disciples, he saw and heard more than Mary herself saw and heard. But what makes them different is what they treasure, not how much they know. That's what makes them different. She treasures Jesus. Judas treasures money. Even though they've seen the same exact things. The glory of Christ fills Mary's heart with adoration. The purchasing power of money fills Judas' heart with thievery and lies and betrayal. What we get here is actually a perfect illustration of what Jesus taught earlier in His ministry, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, he says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, and we're seeing it right here, in the life of Judas. Judas also illustrates what Paul taught in 1 Timothy 6, verses 8-10. to If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. That describes Judas to a T, who forsook the Lord of glory for a baggie full of coins, and who we see here criticizing the woman for her devotion to Jesus out of his love for cash. The joys that Judas is finding in money... Blind him to the glory of Jesus. And the same will be true for us if we begin finding our joy in what money can buy instead of in Christ alone. There's a warning embedded in this passage for all of us, and it's this do not be deceived by Judas' joys. Do not be deceived by Judas' joys and miss the worth of Jesus. A Judas joy is a deceptive joy that says there's more worth and happiness to be found in X, you fill in the blank, than the worth revealed in Jesus, and then the happiness revealed in Jesus. Judas joys are, like Judas, suicidal because they promise life, And in some cases, will never. I mean, will in some cases will deliver what some might even perceive to be life, but they ultimately leave you with more death because they sever you from the one who is life, namely Jesus. So don't be deceived by Judas' joys by finding your happiness in money or in what money can buy or in what money can get you out of or in what image and power money might bring you or in what security money might give you in this world. Rather, look again to Jesus, heaven's eternal King who came to lay His life down for you on the cross. He's our answer to the love of money. He's our Passover lamb to deliver us from our slavery to cash. He's our answer to our value struggles. His mission conquers our materialism. That's where Jesus points everybody in the room, including Judas. What does he say? Verse 7. Leave her alone. I love that phrase. (laughs) Get off her back, Judas. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, so that everything about what she's just done might point people to me and to my death and to my burial. Jesus is pointing out that bound up with Mary's anointing is far more than anybody in the room can imagine. And the focus must remain there on him and his death if they are to get the preciousness of Jesus Christ. He stresses this again in verse 8. For the poor you always have with you. And the you there is plural. He's not just talking to Judas. Judas. He's talking to everybody in the house. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Mark gives us the expanded version. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. For them but you will not always have me. So by saying this, Jesus isn't putting down service to the poor. If anything, he's affirming that we have an ongoing responsibility to the poor. They'll always be with us and we should do good to them. The contrast he's making is between the disciples always having the poor with them and himself fixing to leave via his death And therefore, the disciples will not always have Jesus physically present with them. It's another statement to cinder everybody in the house on his pending death. It's as if Jesus is saying, I want you to get the full significance of this moment because if you miss what's, a, what's true about me in this moment that I'm going to die for you, then you will not value me very greatly when I rise from the dead and money will win over your hearts. He wants everybody to see that Mary just anointed the feet of the one that's racing to the cross on their behalf to deliver them from bondage to money. So here's how Jesus combats Judas' joys. All the Judas' joys that are present in the room. We also get in Matthew and Mark that it's not just Judas speaking up, it's all the disciples. We just know the intentions of Judas' heart here because God points them out. So this is how Jesus combats Judas' joys that are present in the room. He combats thievery, thievery, and covetousness and greed by proclaiming his death once again. In the face of Judas' joys, he lifts up the cross. In a way, he's proclaiming what we see elsewhere in the Bible when, we, when the subject of money comes up with the Corinthian church and Paul tells them, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know it, right? That though he was rich... Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is rich not with cash. Rich with righteousness. Rich with the spirit of grace. Jesus had all the wealth of heaven in other words but he voluntarily made himself poor in order to enrich others with eternal life. Judas We don't see this in. We don't see this sort of love in Judas. Judas uses the poor in order to make himself rich. He uses others in order to make himself rich. Jesus makes himself poor in order to enrich others. To make them rich with God's kingdom. Mary is right in recognizing Jesus' worth. But how awesome is His love demonstrated toward us in that the one of infinite worth and unsurpassable beauty impoverishes Himself even unto death on a cross, even to the lowest place of becoming sin on our behalf that we might gain a right standing with God. Jesus took the lowest of places to seat us in the highest of highs with himself. When we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, don't miss what Judas missed about Jesus. He, the infinitely worthy one, came down from heaven to die for you. He came to give himself for you so that you would gain an eternity of riches in fellowship with his father. Money can never buy your way into heaven. It can never give you eternal life with God. It might win you some friends and give you some power and entertain your passions for a while, but it will never ultimately give you God which is your true need. Because in our sin we are separated from God and we can't and won't fellowship with God unless that problem is taken away, unless our chains, our our slavery to money are broken and Jesus as the Passover lamb breaks those chains. He breaks and He rescues us from that slavery And brings us into a relationship with God. Forgives all of our sins. So money might win you some friends and make you popular. But it can't give you God. Jesus can give you God. Even despite your sin. If you trust him and obey him. He made himself poor and died to forgive sin. And gave a right standing before and give a right standing before God to anybody who would confess that He is Lord and Christ. To everyone who would repent of valuing things in this world above Jesus and give their lives over to valuing Jesus, He promises to give you a relationship with God Himself. Maybe there are some joys that you need to repent of this morning. Some Judas joys, that is. Don't repent of your joy in Christ. Maybe there are some Judas joys that you need to repent of this morning. Maybe your love for money or other material possessions has kept you from giving regularly to this church body. Maybe your desire to secure to be secure in this world has stifled your generosity towards others living around you or that you know are in need of help. Maybe, and husbands hear this one, this comes from my own life, maybe your financial planning, husbands, excludes your wife in ways that smother her devotion to Jesus instead of fanning into flame her devotion to Jesus. Meaning that you're willing to buy whatever serves you and your projects around the house and your hobbies, but then leaving her little to spend when she wants to use her own gifts to serve Jesus. And to serve others well. Maybe you get chapped when people express their devotion to Jesus like Mary did in our passage with such extravagance. Why would you blow this bottle on Jesus' feet? Because she knows how worthy he is. Maybe you get chapped about that instead of rejoicing in the worth of Christ and giving thanks that somebody recognizes Jesus' worth, that He's worth everything that we have. Whatever it is, God has given us a great opportunity to confess these suicidal joys to Him this morning because the supper, again, lifts up the cross for us this morning. It lifts up the cross of Christ and tells us to come to Him and eat at His table and confess our sins there and receive the forgiveness that He offers through His death. Moreover, the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus is risen from the dead and He's not finished with us yet. He forever lives to change us so that more and more we treasure Him and follow Him in the face of all the temptations of Judas' joys around us in this world. He loved us even unto death. He's worthy of all our devotion and He's an infinitely greater Master than money could ever be. He gives us eternal life and leads us into the riches of God Himself. Let's come and eat together and follow Christ.